0: This is a podcast from The Red House, the former home of Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears. I'm Lucy Walker. Join me, colleagues and other guests for a monthly chat about all things Britten and Pears, plus music, culture, heritage in general, and anything else that might come up. Hello and welcome to podcast number seven from The Red House. And as with the previous Four, I think, podcast now. We're not actually broadcasting from the Red House. I'm broadcasting from my house in the middle of nowhere in Suffolk. Uh, and my guest today is Sarah Gabriel. And Sarah, where are you recording from? Uh, London. Yeah. A
1: deliciously <laughs> fresh aired London. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. That's the one of those curious hmm, upsides of this uh, whole adventure, I suppose, in an odd way. But, yes, it is. Yeah. I'm
1: very resentful that the traffic's come back
0: as though yeah. I have no right to do so. <laughs> so we're just going to have a conversation about a few things so just to introduce us all to you sarah what is it that you do for a living i am a singer
1: a writer and an actor and i trained as a classical singer started off doing opera classical music recitals all of which i still love but i also have more recently started exploring writing my own material as in written word not composing uh, collaborating with lots of living composers and working on projects with them and yeah exploring a little bit more something that's a blur perhaps between uh,
0: theatre and pure mm, classical music performances well yes I mean I I knew some of that but I think it's really kind of yeah I don't know you put that on a badge no no I'm working on a tiny font (laughs) um yeah, so that, I mean, the, the at least part of that is how you and I met, um, which I'll just say a little bit about, if that's all right, which was, I think it would have been in 2018, we collaborated um, on a project that took place during the festival, the Alba Festival of that year, in the Pump House, which is the part of the Alba Festival. I guess it's like a kind of fringe, it has cabaret events, and it has bands, and, and what we did, which was a play effectively based around britain and piers and wh Auden's life in this incredible house in brooklyn and i was introduced to you as somebody who would really animate that and make that a great story and run with it and indeed you did and it was the best fun so should we, should we just talk a bit about that because it's one of my fondest <laughs> memories anyway it's something i've done
1: oh that's so lovely i have wonderful memories of doing that and I I think we almost willfully bit off, not more than we could chew, but we we (laughs) took a massive mouthful of a project on board, didn't we? Because I think maybe the original idea was perhaps a sort of slightly illustrated recital with a bit of storytelling. And then we ended up with a a one-hour play, one-act play with a cast of of millions. Um, But I I do remember that felt right for it, didn't it? I think we wanted to tell this story about when, Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears had gone to America um, during the Second World War, with its own concomitant controversy, and Auden had been in this house. And the wonderful thing was, this chap George Davis had—he yeah. said it had come to him in a dream, which is a terribly clichéd way of starting any story, but <laughs> somehow we bought it. And um, that he'd found this tumble-down house in Brooklyn, and he wanted it to be a place where artists could create. And it was such a great story, wasn't it? Because there was mm. Britten, Pears, Auden. Um, Chester Coleman, Auden's lover, then there was um, Gypsy Rose Lee, the yeah. wonderful Gypsy Rose Lee, <laughs> and Carson McCullers, who yeah. wrote the Ballad of the Sad Cafe. And so it's this extraordinary melting pot of creativity.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so it seemed a bit, sort of, a bit sort of stuff shirted I suppose, to have just done that as a as a recycle with just some songs attached to it. So we did it as a sort of musical play, didn't we? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. And then, and then even the kind of vignettes of moments from their lives together based on stuff they'd actually written themselves, which I think was the really clever part of it um so oh, well, you that's yeah that's very kind yeah no indeed to sort of weave that together and
1: and for a house that ended up being so chaotic in real life that um they ended up with sort of circus performers and monkeys that flush yeah. the loo and all that sort of thing it it felt right as yeah. far as i'm concerned
0: yeah it had it had a pleasingly kind of unhinged this could just sort of collapse at any moment sort of slight vibe to it and then the audience sort of really really enjoyed that and we really? enjoyed See, it was very
1: polished and refined, <laughs> know what you're saying here. <laughs> i'm really offended
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> no i thought i, I assumed that was a deliberate part of the aesthetic you know so oh, yeah that, right yeah that's entirely deliberate
1: um uh. yeah no so that was that was that was a really joyous experience mm. i think to explore that mm-hmm. um and yes there were those incidents that had occurred in real life and i remember I, i've written a few biographical sorts of pieces now and i remember having a problem I said problem's too strong a word but a sort of Oh, let's say angst. (laughs) That's a much better word. (laughs) I remember experiencing severe angst about it. Just thinking, there's this curious thing with biographical stuff, which is at at what point, the question of authenticity obviously comes up, and the essential question is, when are you allowed to make stuff up? And this is, is, I'm sure, troubling to everybody who tries to tell a a, a biographical tale. Mm. But we were very lucky, weren't we, that there's this terrific book called The February House by Cheryl Tippins, which is got wonderful documentation of what went on and and, um, and, the, and the anecdotes and things as well um, and I think that whichever way you try and flip things that you're going to feel there's a danger of feeling slightly fraudulent either way it feels odd to make stuff up but also it feels odd sometimes to take the quotes and fill our stage time with it so yeah. um, I remember feeling strange about that but I actually think that it is lovely to use these things they would said in letters especially because people wrote in such distinctive voices uh, it, it's really wonderful hearing um, Benjamin Britten write home and being a little bit anxious about this sort of studenty house that where mm. no one's doing the washing up and yeah. Auden's trying to conduct it in a slightly boarding school kind of fashion and it's still not enough for Britten. he needs to escape somewhere to actually get composing done, yeah. um, whereas Gypsy Rose Lee seems to have sort of just dived into the whole thing and, and enjoyed being an author, having been an extraordinarily successful burlesque performer and she mm. wrote Uh, the G string murders uh, also being in the title (laughs) it's a fabulous (laughs) noir thriller but it's it's that sort of thing where you just think well actually it is good if if they have the if they say the right thing to tell the story then it's really wonderful to use their words I think yeah Um, I was reading Hilary Mantel about this because of course she writes historical biography much further away in the 20th century Mm -hmm. and and she seems to she obviously buries herself in her stories so wonderfully but she, she won't ever move away from the facts. There was a lovely thing a friend of mine actually said about, about the making up of things, which is the loyalty is to the truth, not to the facts, uh, which yeah. might to some people seem like splitting hairs, but actually I think it's a really lovely distinction. If you can try and capture the essence of that world and you can use their words where it seems to work and you're
0: not misrepresenting them in some way, yeah. um, then you can let rip after yeah that. I think so, <laughs> and also the f- the fact that the, and again, the way you did it, which was just to concentrate on this small period of time, you weren't trying to tell a whole story, and there weren't any of those sort of slightly cringe making um, announcements that can, are so common to biopics or, or fictionalized biography um so there wasn't Britain kind of going you know, Auden never cleans the toilet, so therefore I'm going to make a break from him and write opera in a completely new, different way. Are you with me, Peter? You know, there was, (laughs) we didn't have to make it kind of bigger than that moment in time, you know.
1: What I rather loved about it was the mundanity of these stories, this is a sort of before-they-were-famous sort of tale, really, apart from actually yeah. the curious exception of Gypsy Rosalie, who was a superstar <laughs> at the time, as far as I understand, yeah. um, certainly in the States. And, of course, um, Britons and Peer's stars were in the ascendant, but they weren't guaranteed adulation. And it's a nice reminder when we've elevated figures like Auden and Britain and Carson colours to a position of legend, mm. that there they were, scrabbling through, and Gypsy Rosalie had to replace the boiler. I love mm. that stuff. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, those those are lovely stories. And I I think another really great thing about these biographical tales is a a good question to ask is, would you have told this story had they not been in some way stellar figures Mm. in, 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 in music or literary history? And there's something about that story where, of course, there's an added free song, which is, oh, you know, Benjamin Britten had to do the washing up. But, but they, they, or I don't know if he did, actually, to be
0: honest. I think he might have <laughs> I don't think it, he did. Yeah, I'd be really surprised.
1: <laughs> um, I think his piano playing hands were precious and needed to be taken care yeah, of.
0: Yeah, I, I quite often use that excuse. Yeah. <laughs> that's right.
1: I do as well. Um, having, yes, um, I think that I really haven't played the piano for long, but, but my hands are ready. And that's what's important. <laughs> Um, but um but i still think it's a nice story it's an interesting story that these people were there um sort of just moving along together and trying to make it work and the conflict of being in a house and such difference in personalities and energy and work schedules and love stories and misdemeanors and and i think a story like that is wonderful to watch to spy on anyway
0: yeah yes Um, exactly it's like you're peering in through the windows and, and just sort of catching them you know, carrying on. And then last year we did something rather different, um, which was similar in in the in the sense that we were looking at a real person and a moment in that person's life, um, actually not that long after historically, um, ministry, but couldn't be further removed, which was Michael Tippett and his stay in Wormwood Scrubs. it was the result of his tribunal where he declared he, he registered as a conscientious objector and was actually imprisoned for two months. Again using his his words and the pump house proving itself remarkably adaptable from a kind of um, broken-down brownstone to a prison cell and, and working really well. Um,
1: that venue's so good but yeah, for it? whatever story you want to tell, really. And, and the intimacy of it as well is just terrific, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it did work for the digital um, prison.
0: And how did you... Was it? I can't even remember how we did, did. We decide collectively that it was going to be that period in Tibby's life as the most kind of you could put in a box and say we're going to do that those two months specifically.
1: I think so. I should check back on my homework diary. Yeah. But no, I, that, I think it was that. think. And um, and this is a really really great example. I think of of um the constraints being so useful because yeah. of course we we know that you know that year was it that year or just the year before that there was. Oliver Soden's magnificent biography yeah. of Tippett—not just yeah. not just a wonderful biography of Tippett the composer, but also Britain, the British Isles. But as far as i was concerned, that you know through, yeah. through Tippett's lifetime, I, some of the most wonderful descriptions of Blitz London I've ever read anywhere, and just this wonderful sense of the world that Tippett inhabited in a sort of micro and macro sense. And so, yeah. uh, there was absolutely no point in my trying to say anything new about Michael Tippett it's it's really been said at, at this point by Oliver in the most elegant way and yes it's, and eloquently when he talks about it as well not just this glorious book but um what I really liked about this was that the everyday nature of somebody standing up for something was very interesting the fact that Tippett was um a conscientious objector um and an absolutist one which was quite a rare position to take mm-hmm. um and there he was this extraordinary composed with this burgeoning talent, proven talent as well, and he was a wonderful teacher and all these things, and just slightly landed on the wrong side of approval in terms mm. of how he was going to get out of this situation of, of, of not um, contributing to the war effort. Uh, and so it, it was that was such a huge tale in itself, as far as I'm concerned. It, there was We didn't need to
0: sort of romp through the rest of his life in any way, did mm. we? No, no, indeed. No, and actually it, it was more the... It was the circumstances about how he arrived in that position so what had been Mm. what the the historical situation the very real historical and awful situation of the war and the context of him then for being in prison as a result of that and the personal relationships that affected him around that time and who he was able to write to because he wrote these incredibly expressive letters from uh, from prison as well describing it in remarkable Vivid detail.
1: Wonderful letters, yeah. and each of them containing—I think I counted—it was something between thirty and fifty requests per two-page letter <laughs> yeah. um, of, of things that this poor recipient had to do before the next letter in a yeah. fortnight's time. Um, and I, I think she did them all. I mean, she yeah. was a very devoted correspondent, and it would seem um, a sort of factotum, really. Uh, and I suppose, I mean, what I also realize as I write these stories is how monstrously judgmental I am. I'm, I'm horribly puritanical in a way that I pretend to myself I'm not. <laughs> I am very judgmental about these people. In the same way as actually, just popping back to Middle Street for a moment, I, I found of all the characters that I was learning about, writing about, the one that I found most difficult actually was Britain, which we can return to at some other point if you want to, But um, and the one I fell in love with was Gypsy Rose Lee. And I was, mm. I was really fascinated by that experience of how how judgmental or, or, entranced I was by people in a very, mm. I think very childlike and immature way. And, um, and I found, um, with Tippett, I, I found myself, uh, and Oliver's book helps immensely with this, but uh, to, to understand it better. But I found myself really questioning some of his decisions. I understood yeah. the philosophical approach. I really did. I understood that he felt that any contribution to such an act of universal destruction, uh, was was something he couldn't live with yeah but i remember reading things like his refusal to fire watch and just think Mm. i don't know how i don't know how to be appreciative of that i I found that very difficult but i think that's also it really helped me to look more into this conscientious objective thing and it was so lovely to see it through the prism of, of of a creative being like that and to see how others were also quite sympathetic to that as well really because obviously the first world war Um, things have been much, much stricter and conscientious objectors, absolutist ones have been threatened with um, execution, Mm -hmm. and then um, there was the the Richmond 10 who got 10 years hard labour instead of being um, executed, and Mm -hmm. then obviously things eased off a bit in the Second World War, and I think there was a curious admiration and protection of of our artistic assets, and that Mm -hmm. included not just um, hiding away artwork, but perhaps also being sympathetic towards our creators, our composers, and um and the other there's another curious thing of course about biography which is we're we're often investigating the pains of relative privilege anyway aren't we yeah. uh, and so one of the privileges about being a celebrity in any sense a remembered figure is that uh you possibly get the chance to have someone write about you i'm not suggesting sure <laughs> it was a privilege for tippet to have me write about him at all but what i'm saying is um <laughs> that, that whatever that story is that we're investigating if it's a if it's seen as biography quite often um And it's sort of being sold in some sense about the subject matter it will be somebody that we have probably heard of in in some way
0: yeah for sure and i and i think that then some and then occasionally you get one of those stories where where people have been revealed to have done something extraordinary like the the oscar Oscar schindler's story was told mostly brought to people's public attention through a, fi- a novel through Schindler's Ark, as it was called, the wasn't Keneally it? Thomas Book. Keneally, yeah. yeah. So it was yeah. a fictionalised tale of this remarkable thing that happened to somebody who was just just completely transformed through circumstance from being quite venal and um, opportunist to doing something that he would never have predicted that he would have done. And that's one of the most powerful fictionalised biographical treatments I think I've ever read. Um, just actually, while we're talking about um, writing fictionalised lives, did you you've done quite a bit around Dorothy Parker? Am I right? I have. Well, quite a bit. I've I've written
1: a a show um, uh, about Dorothy Parker, a project I did with the wonderful director Richard Williams, Mm -hmm. and we were commissioned to do it by um, the Dartington Festival a few years ago. Um, And the the idea was to write a solo show about a woman. It didn't didn't really matter who. And for some reason, even though I do understand that women comprise approximately 52% of the population, we could not work out... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we can well, think of a woman, Lucy, you know, and oh. I say this as a as a really radically assured feminist. <laughs> um, but uh, but we, we, I think obviously it's royal for choice, but but uh, but also that uh, we didn't really want it to be hagiographical mm. we wanted to perhaps find somebody who had a little bit of the anti hero the anti heroine about mm. them. Mm. And um and at the same time, with this troubling serendipity, we said Dorothy Parker. Mm. Um and, and that was sort of so we thought, well, we have to do it now because we both said her name at the same time, which is a curious reason to do anything, oh. but we went with it. And um, and so we obviously started looking into her, and she's an extraordinary figure, as, as you know, um, one of the luminaries at the Algonquin Round Table in New York in sort of 1919 yeah. to 29 sort of time, the Vicious Circle and uh, obviously she was at parties with George Gershwin and Irving Berlin was in the Vicious Circle and you know she met Harpo Marx and all these different people and she was really fascinating to me because we know her for her very aphoristic or everybody knows her sort of aphorisms I suppose Yeah. Um, but I wanted to see what was beyond that sort of clippedness that Mm. I'd always you know known about her Um, and there was one line. I knew that we had a print deadline coming up. And uh, so we're thinking, oh, goodness, OK, Dorothy Parker, Dorothy Parker, we've got to sort of think of a, a, a particular theme, because, again, we don't want to do a sweep of her entire life. And she'd written um, this, this line, London is satisfied, Paris is resigned, but New York is always hopeful. And we thought, oh, great, great, great. OK, we'll, we'll call it Dorothy Parker Takes a Trip. Um, and we'll mm. essentially just cover her journey to Europe. But we, <laughs> we found out that, she yes, she'd been to Europe once, um, hated it, um, fallen out with Ernest Hemingway and come home again and never really left America ever, ever again. <laughs> so um, then we had a real problem because we didn't really have many incidents to report yeah. about her time. I mean, the biographies don't really have anything on it. So we um, we didn't quite know what to do because obviously we're definitely having to write a show about Dorothy Parker. But we did find out something that I rather liked about After She Died, which I thought was so Dorothy Parker-esque. Mm. Um, it was as though she could observe herself from death, which was... Um, after she died, Lillian Hellman, the writer who was obviously slightly younger generation, um, she was Dorothy Parker's executor. Um, and I think she also presumed she was going to be the inheritor of, mm. the, you know, of the rights and the royalties. But um, one thing that people knew less about Dorothy Parker was that she had a, a, a really extraordinary social conscience. Um, mm. And she um, actually left all of her, what was left of her money and all of her assets to the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. Mm-hmm. but um, Lillian Hellman was so affronted that Dorothy Parker had left her uh, um, everything that she had to the NAACP that uh, she refused to pick up Dorothy Parker's ashes from the mortuary <sighs> and she left them there for something like five or six years I think it was and then eventually the mortuary rang Dorothy Parker's lawyer's office and said, look, you know, uh, we've got Dorothy's ashes here. If you don't pick them up, we're going to, I don't know, burn them. I'm not, I'm not
0: quite sure what uh, you do. with again. Burn them yeah. again. Yeah. I'm not
1: sure. Anyway, so, um, so the lawyer's office said, OK, send them over. And then they put them in a filing cabinet for a further 15 years, I think it was. Um, so they, Dorothy Parker's urn was in a lawyer's filing cabinet for, yeah, 15 years. Uh, so I sort of thought that was quite a good place to set set the play and so (laughs) we set the play in the final hour before um, Dorothy Parker's ashes were finally laid to rest in um, a plot that the NAACP had made for her in um, Baltimore so it's kind of an amazing finish for for her that she'd sort of been often treated quite lightly by people but she'd had this really strong sense that she wanted to do something for people that hadn't had her good fortune and privileges Mm. and so yeah, if you do a whole show being Dorothy Parker I think you probably end up with nodules, certainly towards the end of her life <laughs> she was drinking so much. So what we did was we had Dorothy as an urn, and um, well. and I played, I um, occasionally morphed into being Dorothy, but um, but the rest of the time I was the uh, lawyer's secretary talking to Dorothy like a lunatic, But um, <laughs> but it gave opportunities to sort of tell those incidents in her life. So That's... Dorothy Parker does take a trip, but not quite as far as we'd
0: initially imagined. That's incredible. That that's um, yeah. That that really is remarkable. It's kind of a really nice sleight of hand of, of a title that then you think, oh, it's gonna, it's all gonna be taken place of Dorothy Parker, you know, and a hat on a way to Paris on a boat or something, and actually you you're doing. <laughs> yeah and exchanging repartee with, with people on the whatever I don't know but then actually the the trip then becomes just a really interesting concept oh, that's brilliant I love that well thank you just while we were, we were talking about Amadeus earlier and I just I really I find biopics I mean that particular and there's a lot there seems to be a lot of them and a lot of them about musicians and a lot of oscar-winning performances of actors who've who've made themselves look like the person or, or whatever so the recent, yeah. was the recent judy garland one and there've been others but yeah, that's sometimes right. they can be absolutely painful and i and i i'm not on the whole drawn to them I, and i think well, i really like your your dorothy takes a trip the the urn angle <laughs> was <laughs> much prefer trapped by our own marketing trapped, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was um <laughs> I'll stories which which just take look at it in a much more sidelong way and i find those much more interesting than somebody trying to do a great impression of a, of a person and really nail the singing voice or whatever because sometimes it can be it can be so awful i, I sent you the, the the clip of the hilariously terrible dirt bogard as franz Liszt oh, um wonderful. from the early 1960s which he in his memoirs fully relished the absurdity of the whole thing um but it 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 is truly, it is truly dreadful and it's got extraordinary bits in it where like Richard Wagner, and you know it's Richard Wagner comes off, he's got a big floppy hat and the score of The Flying <laughs> Dutchman under his arm, <laughs> walking, <laughs> okay. up to, walking up to Liszt, saying but you must listen to me, I've revolutionised opera! <laughs> <laughs> I'm Richard, I'm Richard Wagner. And Richard Wagner, and then having the Chopins round for tea, and oh man! Oh, it's the Chopins. It's the yes, show-
1: it's, it, that's <laughs> really, really extraordinary. I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, it, 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 yeah, it's absolutely. Happy. Yeah, I was just because I was just thinking about when people do go nuts with the biography idea. Have you read *Mam Darling* by Craig Brown? No, I haven't. Well, um, I read this because I, everyone recommended it to me as this very funny biography of Princess Margaret because Craig Brown does something very clever with this biography, which is, first of all, yes, he tells these great stories and these frankly horrifying anecdotes about Princess Margaret, mm. but also every few chapters he creates an alternative life of what might have been, which oh, is an incredibly wow. daring thing to do and mm. always funny. It's always very witty and clever and imaginative and also could have happened given the crazy route that her life took.
0: Um as a slightly disappointed princess yeah, and it's also it seems to me to be acknowledging the fact that you can't know everything about someone's life you know that that you're you're kind of filling in a few things or you're, you're making suggestions you're linking a to b that Absolutely. actually you know who knows maybe that did happen you know at this distance and because you, you aren't princess margaret and you never knew her that well anyway it's 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 revealing the speculative nature of any biography i think that's really clever
1: and i think also there's this lovely thing where when it comes to autobiography as well yeah. um which is um you're authorized once someone's written something like that there's a curious sense of being authorized to take a certain amount of license yeah um, yeah
0: why and, not? That, and there's absolutely no i don't think anyone thinks that autobiographies are necessarily true no <laughs> and, that, and that because well that, i'm quite gullible but um yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the facts might be verifiable, but you know, you you're editing, you know, all the time. Oh, I, mean, I think I think that's charming about you, Sarah. I just I no, you know, <laughs> believe every word. I do, I do. I think they're <laughs>
1: lovely stories, but then of course, actually, when we think about it, also everybody is writing their own rolling biography, autobiography right now. Totally. We, if we sort of think of the way people use Instagram and Twitter yeah. and all carefully curated. Are, <laughs> it's so carefully curated and so presentational. Yeah. Uh, um, that yeah, I suppose everyone's. Well, yeah, yes, so true. N- n- narrating their own mundane tales. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, indeed. It's um, you're you're the kind of did you say it was Craig Brown the um yeah Princess Craig Margaret Brown thing? Mam yeah Darling, because yeah. it reminded me t- it's a different kind of thing I think but there was a great book by you know Joyce Carol Oates yeah um, who wrote a book called Blonde which is massive it's all this one of these huge great thick books that you can't read in bed because you've break your wrist um and Short it's and it's kind of brilliant well it's the, um but it's about Marilyn Monroe but it's kind of using the scaffolding of her life so the basic structures of it and then doing yeah. a lot of speculative work in between it it's just using this person as a sort of symbol to talk about this person's life and how she's treated and the impact of the world on her and sort of being buffeted from from man to man and, and studio to studio and all the rest of it and i remember it being really struck by that so it's a kind of biography but it at no point says this is a biography or fictionalized biography of marilyn monroe it's just using her life which is so well told by this stage like a kind of symbol so that that's a, that's a really good one and it, it's
1: so that's uh, going on the reading list
0: of, on my definitely. guilt pile as i like <laughs> yeah you know, make, make a sort of reinforced table or something for your guilt pile because <laughs> this is a heavy book <laughs> um right we we are coming to the end of this this um conversation sadly but what i have been doing with every podcast guest is um grilling them as to what they've been listening to recently Mm -hmm. so it can be one or two things it can be more and it can be just something we might be able to add to a spotify playlist or it can be anything really so what, what what have you been listening to well i don't know why i'm
1: I do have this masochistic tendency towards feeling guilty about the things I'm not doing. And um, I, I was <laughs> I was talking to my dear friend, Roger Mullis, the other day, who is spending his lockdown time listening, re-listening, I'm sure, for the umpteenth time to the complete works of Wagner. Um, and I did actually send him um, a Dover edition score of one of the operas the other day just to feel I was part of it without actually having to sit and listen. And um, <laughs> it's not because I don't like Wagner. It's just he, I, at the moment, and I think other people are re- responding in different ways, I don't have... Super long concentration span at the moment. I think I'm.
0: I think that's very common at the moment, to be honest. Yeah, well, I think it's
1: quite common. And I think yeah. what I've decided is to dispatch the guilt, dispense with the guilt, and to enjoy miniatures again. Really mm. get into tiny micro storytelling. And the, the there are a couple of things that I've enjoyed, which are sort of two artists who I just think create wonderful worlds around the way they sing. And mm. um, the first one is Arlene. Algeau, I think oh, yes. is how we say it. It was cooking lunch, and onto the radio came the most ethereal rendition of Britain's The Sally Gardens I'd mm. ever heard, and it was hers, and it was just wonderful, and it's on this lovely album, unashamedly eclectic album called Love Songs, and I guess um, she got in there early with album titles, because you couldn't call it that now. <laughs> no, probably um, not. But it's, it's, just, it's just a rather lovely um interpretation there's something otherworldly about it and it's so evocative that when i listen to that recording i i feel i know everything about their story not just the two verses that we get to hear in that song but so many more arguments and so many other things Mm. that happen between them and this sort of i just have this feeling of the life stretched yeah. out which which is rather nice and then the other artist who I love um for her eclecticism in a slightly different way as of vocal eclecticism is Eileen Farrell so I've been listening to lots of her work again um and the reason I love her is because she she's a good reminder that um you can have the sound and the style of a specialist in in more than one specialism and there's a rather cheeky rendition of I'm Old Fashioned that she oh, sings yeah. which is just delightful with a really nice arrangement so i i've just found these artists just very evocative in mm. these miniaturist kind of ways um and Fabulous. that's really been lovely for me i think recently
0: great oh what a lovely selection well, they, they are going on the should we put i'm oh, old-fashioned on oh yeah, sorry so it's, it's not it's not a i don't have the power <laughs> of veto it's like, well that's not going on craft, <laughs> i'm afraid really?
1: that's really not to scratch sarah <laughs> yes. i don't know what you're listening to but <laughs>
0: Either like stockhausen or bust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Well, no. I mean, God. I mean, my my choices aren't. Well, my, yes, mine are, my um, minor minor two female singers as well. I've been doing this daily Opus number thing, and I have to know right. something about all of his major pieces in order to to kind of speak with it's some integrity about can them. Can I
1: just say that is an extraordinary feat, Lucy? It oh, really bless is you! So wonderful. <laughs>
0: it's just glorious. Oh, anyway. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm here for the love. Um, Good. But one thing said, I didn't have to do any homework on at all because I've always been really obsessed with it, but I listened to it loads anyway uh, recently, is Phaedra, which is Ah, from the last years of his life and is kind of Britain really just letting rip uh, and letting his hair down. And it's one of the most powerful pieces that just send shivers at me. From the first time I heard it, I heard it at university. A really good friend of mine, when we were finals, sang it amazingly. She's only 22 with the, with the university orchestra brilliantly and i are sort of helping her prepare for it. And it's just, it is just the most incredible force from be- from beginning to yeah. conclusion. And it's this sustained um, moment in a woman's mad mind before she dies. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Um and I mean, it really so many great recordings Sorry. of it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah carry on. so
1: many great recordings, and I think what's really glorious about that is are, are those moments when Britain is such a phenomenal um, biographer of womankind in some way. I find this with Handel as well. That you get, having said all this stuff about you know these characters that are too highbrow or too high up or the ones that you know the gods and monsters the way that they humanize those figures is really something extraordinary uh actual fact, one thing i have been enjoying listening to recently is somebody else who really humanizes those mythological and and ancient historical figures and um that's natalie haynes who has this lovely radio 4 series natalie haynes stands up for the classics and you know she covers all these wonderful stories and uh, what's also rather exciting about that is going back to those figures and retelling those stories musically and actually I've enjoyed doing that with the composer Sarah Anglis. recently we've done a, a, a little track to finish off Natalie's lockdown episode on Eurydice and Fantastic. so we've done a tiny little song about that and it's really nice to go back into those characters and think well actually what if she didn't want him to turn around what if she actually <laughs> just thought Orpheus just jog on I don't really want to uh, <laughs> the, the moment's I'm, passed I'm quite happy here in Hades so yeah really, you know, <laughs> leave
0: me to it yeah um that's so interesting is, it's actually locating them correctly but saying look yeah. because those were still people those stories that's, that, that's why those stories sort of endure and, and are, are told could be retold so creatively
1: definitely yeah there's yeah. something rather magical about that
0: yeah and just to just to conclude I go on a on a daily walk as we're you know have been allowed to for some time but i've i've gotten really got into the, granted, into the habit now and I, <laughs> yes. there's a and I just I usually listen to to audiobooks but i turn turn on music just in the home straight to keep me kind of interested and just today came out one of my favorite songs which is so full of sunshine anyway but is dusty springfields am i the same girl and i just <gasps> love it i think it's my favorite of her songs i just it's just smile on face Music. It's
1: just glorious. It's yeah. absolutely glorious. And if we're allowed things that are in that sort of realm, of I course.
0: also,
1: I find Corinne Bailey Ray's Put Your Records On does the same thing for me, okay. actually.
0: Just something like that, just to pick you up. Pick, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, in need of all, all that stuff. That. Um, yeah, no, th- this, this playlist is a broad church. Well, <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Okay, well, I think we've covered probably most things including the biography and all the musicians and everything that we needed to cover in this podcast this has been an absolute joy talking to you
1: thank you lucy it's been a thrill it's been so nice to actually be in contact with a human as well it's
0: amazing (laughs) no no it's you specifically don't worry (laughs) (laughs) um wonderful so thank you so much for joining me and i will be back in in a couple of weeks i should think with podcast number eight from probably not quite the red house but somewhere nearby so bye for now